Now, if you can, turn in your pew Bibles to Psalm 83. You can find it on page 922. Um, we're going to read Psalm 83 for our responsive reading today. Uh, or if you prefer, you can follow along on the TV monitors. There we go. Um, so we're going to do this responsively, uh, verse by verse. So I will begin with verse 1, and you guys can follow along verse 2, and we'll, we'll go back and forth. Psalm 83, a song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silent. Be not quiet. O God, be not still. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. With one mind they plot together, they form an alliance against you. Gabal, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia with the people of Tyre. Do to them as you did to Midian, as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. Make them like tumbleweed, O oh my God, like chaff before the wind. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. May they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. And our next scripture reading comes to us from Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 785. Page 785. Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. 
The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased with those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Delphon, Espatha, Poratha, Adaliah, Eridatha, Parmashta, Erisai, Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and, ten, and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. Then Jews in Susa, however, the Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Thus ends our reading of God's unchanging word. May all who hear it find true peace. In many ways, the passage we just read is the most difficult section in the book of Esther. And it's not difficult in the sense that it's too hard to grasp. The facts are laid out pretty clearly. No. The struggle lies in the message those facts convey. Scripture will challenge you when it calls out your sin. And the Bible will stretch your faith when you consider all the miraculous ways that God has intervened throughout history. Yet what becomes most problematic for some is when God's word paints a picture of God that offends your sense of morality. In the story we just read, you, you may have seen that may have seen things that are disagreeable to you. Perhaps you encountered some facts that, that made you question the motives of someone who you had once considered a hero. Even now, you may be questioning the goodness of God. Let me ask you, why does God allow violence? Why does he permit killing to occur in his name? 
And how can any war be referred to as holy? What kind of God promotes the slaughter of 75,000 people? We have been in the book of Esther for many weeks now, and we are nearing the end. Last week we saw that the, the evil of one man can outlive the man himself. The decree for the destruction of the Jews was still the law of the land, even though its orchestrator, Haman, was now dead. And because this law was sealed with the king's signet ring, it could not be overturned. Instead, a second decree had to be written, one that would reverse the situation one that would place the same threat that, had, that the Jews faced upon the heads of those who considered themselves enemies of the Jews. And we saw, too, that this second decree made its way throughout the Persian Empire. And as it did, the mood of God's people shifted from that of mourning and fasting to that of joyous celebration accompanied with feasting. For the Jews had gained a great ally, King Xerxes himself. Such a dramatic turn of events was evidence to many that, that Yahweh, the, the God of the Jews, was real. And many converted because of it. Yet the time had not yet come, and both sides were preparing for the hour of war for the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Let's go to the text once more, verses 1 and 2. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities all the, in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the, people of, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. The tables had indeed turned. None could stand against the Jews. The, the story of Esther doesn't end with a simple cancellation of a threat. No, a war was fought. Truth be told, if, if Haman's edict had been overturned, the threat would have remained. The enemies would have still been around, waiting for another moment that they could strike. Instead, with such a reversal of fortune, the, the Jews of that time saw true salvation come to them. And such fear fell upon the, the followers of Haman that they were easily overcome. But why so much fear? Because Xerxes had appointed, had appointed Mordecai as his second in command. That meant that a Jew had command over all the nobles and all the governors of the different provinces. And so these powerful men helped the Jews in their cause. 
What does this exactly look like? Well, the text doesn't say. It could have been that Persian soldiers fought alongside them. It may have meant that the, these officials aided the Jews by providing them with weapons. Whatever the case was, their help was significant in the Jews gaining victory. But there is, there's more to this fear than just the fact that Mordecai had now gained great power. It was how he came to that power so quickly. The hand of God was behind all of this. And, and both sides, they, they sensed the providential might of that one true God, the God of Israel. And this was made evident in what we read in verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Here we see pure dominance. These foes were no match for the Jews. This is what God does for his people. He gives them complete victory. This wasn't a, a battle of attrition like, like the American Civil War, where the Union armies lost, lost more lives than the Confederates, yet still won the war. No. From what we are reading here, it seems like the Jews had very few casualties. It seems, it seems similar to the, the epic battles that we read about in Scripture of David and his mighty men, these violent encounters where one man would take on a hundred. Or like the destruction of Jericho, where God tore down the walls of that city, allowing the Israelites a mighty, mighty victory. What we see described here is a very lopsided war. How this happened, the author doesn't say given the lack of the miraculous in this book, we have to assume that it was of a providential nature. It was God working through the actions of men that led to this Jewish triumph. Yet even in the absence of miracles, it became evident that God was the one leading the charge. The goal of such a description is to to communicate that the Lord had gone before them and he was fighting their battle. Verses 6 through 10. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Delthon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adaliah, Eridatha, Parmasha, Erisai, Eridai, Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Here we see a common practice of holy war. Not only was the opposing king supposed to be killed, but all of his offspring as well, leaving no room for future retaliation. Now, if you remember way back when we were discussing chapters 2 and 3, I had mentioned that Mordecai was of the lineage of Kish, 
And Kish was the father of King Saul. And you may also recall that Haman has been continuously described as an Agagite, one from the line of Agag, king of the Amalekites. And it was King Saul who did not fulfill the conditions that God had set forth in his holy war against the Amalekites. Instead of killing King Agag, Saul took him captive. And for this reason, God removed Saul from the throne of Israel and gave it over to David. Now, what we see in this chapter is the fulfillment of that command to King Saul. In many ways, Haman was the new king of the Amalekites. Sure, he was already dead, but his sons had lived on. And in many ways, Esther and Mordecai had stepped into the shoes of King Saul, completing the task that he did not finish. They stayed true to the terms of the holy war and made certain that the sons of Haman would not live past the 13th day of the month of Adar. These men, they had been set apart for destruction, as we shall see in the next verses. Look at verses 12 through 15. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. <clears throat> Just as Haman was impaled on the pike by the request of Esther, so too would his sons be lifted high for public humiliation. It was a grisly reminder of what happens to those who attack the queen and her people. And we see as well that Esther requested for one more day, one more day that the edict would be carried out in, within the city walls of Susa. Now we can only speculate as to why she would do this. Was she a vengeful and bloodthirsty queen? Was this a way of protecting her family from further retaliation? Maybe there were prisoners left alive. Was this the only way the Jews could fulfill the terms and conditions of a holy war? The author doesn't give us any clues. So it's wise to let the matter rest. Rather than attempting to solve this mystery, we should instead ponder over the fact that in the capital city of Persia, there would be one more day of civil war at request of the queen. Yet throughout the rest of the kingdom, there would be peace. 
verse 16. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's province, provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. Finally, we see the, the full weight of the devastating effect that Haman's decree had, had brought throughout the kingdom. 75,000 people died. That's an incredible number, particularly for a one-day war. Now, according to Mordecai's edict, the Jews were only supposed to defend themselves. And if this was truly the case, then you can see how widespread the hatred for the Jews was. This maniacal nature did not rest solely on Haman. The animosity for God's people was extensive. Of course, what the author does not make clear is whether or not these 75,000 were men only. Were women and children included in that number? Did the Jews follow through on the edict's command that women and children of those who attacked them would perish as well? It's difficult to say. On the one hand, this was a typical condition for holy wars. This is what the Israelites did throughout their whole history. Yet, Mordecai's edict also called for the plunder of goods. And this is now the third time that the author mentions that the, the Jews did not lay their hands on the plunder. So we know that the Jews did not feel that it was necessary to abide by all of the decrees, provisos. But again, we must remember God's command to King Saul when battling the Amalekites. Look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. King Saul and his men were not to take any plunder, but to des destroy everything, even the women and the children and the infants. As if fulfilling the command that God had given so long ago, we now see the Jews being obedient to the conditions set forth by the Lord for a holy war against the Amalekites. It was the Lord who went before them, giving the Jews the upper hand. And the Jews of this time, they, they recognized this, and they honored their God accordingly. They remained true to the conditions of holy war and did not plunder the goods of their enemies, even though the law had permitted them to do so. Verses 17 through 19. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. 
The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day of giving presents to each other. The war was now over, and, the peop- and God's people were victorious. Staying true to the, the banquet theme that flows throughout the book of Esther, we see that the Jews celebrated their triumph by feasting. And these days of Purim, which they would later be called, would be commemorated annually by the Jews, even to this day. But that's for next week's sermon. Jews were rescued. 75,000 people died. God had worked his plan of salvation. The sons of Haman had been impaled for all to see. The Jews were feasting and celebrating. The friends and the loved ones of those who perished were in mourning. This is the tension we feel when we read this text. God demonstrates the rescue of his people through his judgment upon others. The 13th of Adar was a bloody, bloody day. Sure, the the bad guys were the ones that were dying. Were all 75,000 really that bad? And weren't some of them women and children? If we believe this to be a holy war, then most likely, yes. Didn't Jesus teach us to turn the other cheek and to pray for our enemies? Is this God that we see in the Old Testament the the same God that we see in the New? Let me ask you a question. Do you have a problem with God's method of rescue in this story? Or how about Psalm 83, which we read together earlier? Make them like tumbleweed, O my God, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, or a flame sets the mountains ablaze. So pursue them with your tempest, and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame, so that men will seek your name, O Lord. May they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Do you have a problem with these words? If you do, might I suggest that maybe your sense of morality is the one that is a bit off. The reason so many have a problem with sections of scripture like this is because they have a a limited view on sin and evil. Hence, they don't fully understand what true justice means or what true salvation looks like. Often, people want a God who will eradicate sin and evil so long as he leaves people alone. 
friends, sin and evil do not exist apart from beings who sin and beings who do evil. Whenever God enters into a holy war, it is ultimately a battle against the wickedness in man's heart. After God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and as they entered the land of Canaan, they were charged to destroy the people who were there. Not so that they would have all the land to themselves. No. But because the iniquity of the Canaanites had grown to its full measure. Israel was God's instrument of judgment upon a wicked people. God does not just willy-nilly choose a random people to attack. In fact, God was patient with these people. He had waited 400 years for their repentance. 400 years until their, their sin had reached its full measure. Brothers, sisters, until you understand how sinful sin really is, God's ways will be a mystery to you. When God flooded the world, he was just in doing so. When he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he was just in doing so. Even when he sent the Babylonians to destroy and kill many of his own people, he was just in doing so. And when he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross, when he poured out the full cup of his wrath and his fury, he was just in doing so. Don't you see? You will never understand the full extent of God's love until you understand the full extent of his righteous anger towards sin. It was at Calvary that the sins of the whole world was placed on our Lord. It was on the, on the cross that the, the love of God and the justice of God were reconciled. These holy wars that you read about in the Old Testament, they're not about two nations battling in warfare, one of which just happens to be Israel. No. Holy war is about God battling against the wickedness on this earth. Remember, these followers of Haman had pitted themselves against God's people. And by doing so, they had declared war against God himself. The story of Esther describes for us real events, things that happen to real people, Yet it also paints a picture of God's greater story. Just as God needed to root out the evil that was plaguing the Jews, so too will he root out all evil throughout his old, whole creation. Bottom line is this. In order for God to save, he must first punish. In order to rescue his people, Sin 
and wickedness must be done away with, including the evil that is in your own hearts. Listen, if you are in Christ, if you have truly repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, then your punishment is taken care of. That being said, God still needs to root out the evil that lingers within you. He must sanctify you. However, if you don't know Christ, if you are not trusting in Jesus and the work that he did for you on the cross, then your sins remain upon you. And the, the edict of holy war has not been lifted. Turn to Jesus and find peace. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it is difficult to swallow. You are a just God who does not let the guilty go unpunished. That's why we need your son. Only through him can we find true peace and an end to our holy war against you. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Let us look to the cross for forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.